0: Welcome to Building Sustainability, the podcast that brings you interviews with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. I'm your host, Geoffrey Hart. I hope that you're doing well and are healthy wherever you are. This week's episode continues the theme of getting outside and reaping the benefits of connection to nature. Today, I'm really pleased to bring you a conversation with illustrator and author Nick Hayes. Uh, Nick is, well, he's been my favourite illustrator for, for a number of years, so it was really nice to get to chat to him. Um, he has a book coming out soon. I think he's just putting the final finishing touches to The Book of Trespass crossing the lines that divide us that's coming out on Bloomsbury. i'm going to keep this intro really short because it's quite a long conversation but i'll give you the blurb about the book so the book of trespass is a meditation on the fraught and complex relationship between land politics and power this is england through the eyes of a trespasser the vast majority of our country is entirely unknown to us because we are banned from setting foot on it By law of trespass, we are excluded from 92% of the land and 97% of its waterways, blocked by walls whose legitimacy is rarely questioned. But behind them lies a story of enclosure, exploitation and dispossession of public rights, whose effects last to this day. The Book of Trespass takes us on a journey over the walls of England into the thousands of square miles of rivers, woodland, lakes and meadows, that are blocked from public access. By trespassing the land of the media magnates, lords, politicians and private corporations that own England, Nick Hayes argues that the root of social inequality is the uneven distribution of land. Weaving together stories of poachers, vagabonds, gypsies, witches, hippies, ravers, ramblers, migrants and protesters, and charting acts of civil disobedience that challenge orthodox power at its heart. The Book of Trespass will transform the way you see England. So without further ado, enjoy this episode of Building Sustainability.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. I guess just on the practical level that the that the plague just wiped out so many of the workforce that all of a sudden the, um, the feudal owners of the land uh, weren't able to call the shots because they were def- desperate for the, you know, for the wheat to be brought in before it rotted in heaps.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so all of a sudden uh, the peasants uh, were able not just to call the price of their labor, but also to call... Uh, that there was just this massive greater mobility. You know, they weren't right. tied to as they as feudalism would dictate. They weren't tied to the various uh, places that they were born and brought up on because they had these feudal ties. Mm-hmm. They were able to go uh, uh, like elsewhere to other counties um, in order to you know being attracted by another lord's greater sort of daily rate. Yeah. Of thing. So all of a sudden, the power shifted uh towards the working class in a way that i don't think i mean it's very hard to find an example since then that it has shifted quite so dramatically yeah um but of course, two years later uh, there came the first vagrancy i mean this is the sort of the root of the notion of vagrancy okay uh, because suddenly mobility was legislated against Mm -hmm. Um, and suddenly if people were found to be walking between one place and another, uh, much like slaves in America, if they didn't have a little chit to sort of legitimize them, uh, they'd have, you know, a hole branded in their ears or the the letter V branded on their uh, forehead. Um, And for a certain period of time, they could be enslaved uh, and be, you know, sort of uh, they'd have to work a year or uh for free kind of thing and and that was the kind of uh authoritarian response to the freedom of the working class (laughs) they just banned their movement so it's like Um, two
0: years of of uh having it having it good and then back under the thumb
1: yeah 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 (laughs) and there we've stayed ever since basically (laughs) and i guess my you know my thesis in the book is that that was the the kind of um that's when the fear of uh, uh, mobility, because like, kind of became set in stone in the psyche of the country, mm-hmm. because kind of geographic mobility was akin or was parallel to kind of social mobility. Uh, if people were um, by law rooted to the spot, uh, they just didn't have the ability to uh, better their situation. Right. Go to where the grass is greener yeah um and so by by banning people moving you were essentially uh you know sort of restricting them to their social order as well as their sort of geolo- geographic order kind of right. thing
0: so it's complete control over someone's you know life then
1: absolutely And i mean i guess one of the things that uh i tried to say through the book that like control of the land control of who moves across the land or who moves or or the rights that people have to certain areas of land is just uh it it is just a direct parallel to control of the actual society that mm-hmm. lives that lives around it because you know we are physical three dimensional creatures and we need to even during the age of the internet uh we still need to um exist somewhere, and so you know you can uh like right now you you know we're sort of working from home and stuff, but you can't really work from home uh if your rent is too you know if if someone has kind of uh, upped the rent kind of thing if yeah. you're you become homeless then still we're back to back to basics if someone can control your rights to to sort of live or to be or to just simply walk through land, then they're controlling the kind of opportunities that you have uh, in in your life. Yeah. You know, we still live on a kind of analogue level where we still have to be situated somewhere. And if we don't have rights to anywhere, because, I mean, you are sat on a boat at the moment, and so you've essentially bought your right to a moving little cube of space kind yes of
0: thing. Yeah, yeah
1: but that terrifies people because of the moving bit you know so there's very strict rules as to where you you can move and you can't move and, and,
0: and how often they uh, have to move
1: yeah and and actually th- that side of things is is more is i see as less authoritarian it it, it doesn't benefit the elite view of the world it benefits the community the wider community of boaters okay because otherwise you just find a really beautiful spot and just stay there all the time which would mean that every single other boater wouldn't be able to experience that spot
0: ah i've i've heard that it comes from the the old days of sort of parishes and there was a 14 day rule on uh, sort of you know people wandering into a parish and then the parish would look after them but they they had to move on. That's not particularly well explained.
1: No, I hear you. So it was about um, it was about uh, sort of jurisdiction, yeah. boundaries, kind of thing. If you were within the boundaries, then you had certain rights to it. But yeah. the parish didn't want to provide for you for longer than two weeks.
0: Exactly. Like they'll look after the poor and needy, but you know, there's a limit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but to me, that's kind of you know there is a. Um, uh For example, the trespass signs on uh railways mm. uh to me, those trespass signs are signs that benefit the wider community because they 're trying to stop not just people getting individual people getting electrocuted as they or, or run over as they uh, as they sort of trespass on the railway lines but also uh you know delaying the hundreds of people that have also got their lives to lead. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, who are using the trains kind of thing. Those to me are examples of signs that operate, uh, that are an operation of power for the wider community. But the same no trespassing sign when placed around the perimeter of, say, a 7,000 acre bluebell wood Mm -hmm. that happens to have been enclosed from, you know, what it used to be as common land, say, in the 1850s, uh, and is now became private land because uh, you know, the guy that uh, bought it was also the guy that was in parliament voting for that enclosure bill. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a no trespassing sign. That is an operation of power for one person against the, uh, the rights and the interests of every single other person right. on earth that might want to walk through a blue wood. Yeah. So there's a sort of subtle distinction. I'm not against, um, I'm not against, uh sort of being told what to do i'm just against uh you know because there is especially in covid this situation now in a way the state is controlling us in a way that uh you know people uh in any other situation would find absolutely totalitarian Mm. uh so are we actually just patsies to the state will uh I don't think so because we're doing this for uh the community of people we're mm. we're looking uh to protect you know the the, the more vulnerable people that have uh as, whose immune systems are slightly weaker because of uh diseases that they've had in the past, but the elderly all, all of that kind of thing people who have had pneumonia we're We're being told by the state to stay in, but I think we're complying because we see that it benefits all of us. There's something about trespass laws. There's something about the laws of property, specifically really in England, that we swallowed as a a status quo or an orthodoxy, uh, as if they are the rules similarly that benefit society. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But they don't. They benefit uh, the absolute 1% of the 1% of society, uh, who just so happen to be the people uh, that run the media and run, you know, historically run the parliament that set the rules um yes so i have a problem with those trespass signs but not all trespass signs
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're not just ripping down no trespass signs indiscriminately
1: yeah yeah i don't i don't want uh you know and land rights campaigners will often be accused of uh well if we let people if you know run amok it will always be called run amok in the countryside who knows what will happen you know like gates will be left open sheep will be worried by dogs uh uh, litter will be strewn across and you can't just let people these vandals like sort of uh, swarm into the countryside and uh, you know like without any respect but they always try and present us as the uh, the kind of uh, raving mad extremists mm-hmm. but um, it's the laws of property that the kind of what I say in the book the cult of exclusion this sense that uh, owning great swathes of land should also come with the right to exclude other people' access uh, to the health benefits the mental health benefits, just the the beauty of these things that can that can give so much to uh, the people that use them and to the point that they 're actually downright essential yeah um, there's a kind of madness and an extremity of uh, the kind of claw. That holds the land that, that that won't give anything away because it's mine 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 mm-hmm. but one of the tactics has always been to uh uh sort of portray the trespasser or the rambler or the uh the right to roam campaigner as someone that just wants to do away with all order um and they use that argument precisely because property itself uh is uh you know, it is an act that undermines a natural harmony, uh, a sort of, you know, like a, I say this is mine. Uh, and because I say this is mine, that means you can't have anything to do with it. Um, that might work with a, a, a television or, or a boat like you're on at the moment. You wouldn't want uh, people you know, coming to live on your boat because it just, you wouldn't have any privacy or, uh, you know... I mean, it depends who, but... Well, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, you know, um, th- th- there's a sense of... that it- It's reasonable for you to require your own privacy. Um, what's unreasonable is that if your boat uh, was the size of Manchester <laughs> and, you know, Manchester formerly lived on that area and that you yeah. then cleared the inhabitants of Manchester so that your property could extend across there. And there are dukes and lords and earls in England that own the equivalent, not just of Manchester, but Manchester, Leicester and Birmingham. That's the Duke of Buclew, owns the equivalent landmass in the UK. One of
0: the, the major landowner, major landowner in, uh, is it the, the UK?
1: Or? Yeah, the Duke I of Buclew got... is the, uh, yeah, <laughs> very good. That's, that's good homeworking.
0: I, well, I worked on uh, a bit of his land, actually. Uh, Did you? Restoring, yeah, I was restoring a, a 17th century cob building uh, just over the border in Scotland. Oh, wow. And uh, the guy who I was working with, actually, at the end of the project, after he'd been paid quite a lot of money to restore this, this building, because it was about to fall down and uh, historic Scotland were, were kicking up a fuss. Uh, so that the Duke had to, had to do something about it. The friend I was working with then offered uh, Duke of the Clue uh, just I think under market value for the land because he knew it was just a bit of a money drain for him. Sure. And Duke just uh, just offloaded this thing, so my friend's now got this beautifully renovated uh, or restored uh, cob barn. Oh that, my uh, god! Yeah.
1: Oh, he did well out of that, didn't he?
0: He did very well. <laughs> he's, he's one of those people that
1: is he a bit of a jammy dodger? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, good lad.
0: Not afraid of the cheeky question.
1: Uh, <laughs> he who dares, Rodney.
0: <laughs> exactly. He's very much like that. <laughs> um, so, so where is it? Like, you know, we've we've sort of ascertained that uh, you know something the size of my boat is it's all right to. To sort of stake a claim to, and then something the size of Manchester, not. But where I mean, there's obviously a whole gradient in between, and where mm-hmm. where does it get, where does it get like sticky or interesting?
1: Well, I mean, it gets sticky and interesting on every fence line. Uh, I, I I I sort of understand uh, the question that you're asking is like, uh, you know, if um, if seven thousand acres is too much. Uh, then is you know is one acre enough or you know who who sets this limit it's a very valid question Um, and there's two there's kind of two parts to the answer because in obviously we look to Scotland or Norway or Sweden or Estonia or Finland who are all countries that have uh, uh, historically had the right to roam or uh, the right uh, the various rights that come with the right to roam—you know, the right to mm-hmm. kayak, the right to walk, the right to uh, pick mushrooms or sort of forage kind of thing—the yeah. uh, right to camp, the right to sort of stay temporarily on the land. Um, even in Scotland, that just enshrined it in law in uh, 2003. Uh, it's these these rights go back a long way, and uh, you know, are sort of enshrined not just in the. Uh, the mindset of the people, but sometimes in the kind of common law or even the kind of, uh, you know, civil law of the land. Uh Um, Yeah. So, so these places that have had um, uh, the right to roam uh, enshrined in their culture for a a long time uh, since time immemorial, really the, they have, uh, A kind of codified sense of how close to someone's property you're allowed to lay your tent Mm -hmm. Uh, in the Scottish legislation. It's it's just defined as a reasonable distance and reasonable is uh, something that sort of respects the other person's privacy. So if they can see you from the kitchen window or even, you know, if they've climbed the tree at the end of their garden, they can see you camping. That's too close. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Sweden, uh, it's it's 170 meters from there.
0: Oh, they've um, got a specific.
1: They have a very specific uh, kind wow. of buffer zone kind of thing. Um and
0: is that that's is that from a dwelling or is it from well, uh, property? Or... Yeah, it's,
1: it's well, it's called the curtilage. So it's from the uh, the boundary that the edge of the dwelling and the the sort of private garden. Mm-hmm. But again, this is where that's not answering your question because, you know, how big is someone's private garden allowed to be? Uh, Friends of mine own a farm in Suffolk and they've got got 12 acres and 12 acres is quite a large amount of land, but it's not sprawling. Mm. And so if they had someone camping uh, in, you know, the the paddock just beyond, uh, beyond what you can see from your kitchen window, that still might be considered as an invasion of space. Um, so the question is who uh, who gets to define it, and even in Norway and Scotland, um, that is a, a, an area of contention. Like how big is enough private land? Because the Duke of Buccleugh, whose estate I visit in the book, um, he, his uh, his Deer parks, now deer parks are the kind of, uh, were the origin really of, uh, you know, the, the, this notion that you should have the right to exclude people from your area of land. Uh-huh. Now deer parks are massive because deer range, you know, they, they, they need a huge amount to range and to graze. Um, and he could very much argue that, you know, the land that uh, he enclosed from common land Uh, is his private garden just because there are sort of architectural elements uh, across you know there's follies or um, great long avenues of lime trees have been planted in the 18 uh, in the 1800s yeah Um, and so he could argue that quite uh, neatly Um, so it is an area of contention there's not one answer to it but To be honest, if you gave everyone their uh, deer parks and you were still allowed, like, in Scotland to sort of walk the edges of the arable fields or to uh, walk in the woods or um, uh, anything that has become industrialised or uh, that kind of thing, you'd still have an enormous amount of land. The majority of the land that's excluded would be opened up to people. Yeah. So I would answer that that's just a matter for... um, uh discussion but at the moment that discussion is even off uh the table like uh to, to even raise that discussion which my book seeks to do is uh for the daily mail and the daily telegraph and the sunday times uh to write uh how mad you are mm-hmm. and if you want if you if you're looking for you know people the public this is the by far the most common retort and everyone that makes it thinks they've just invented it but uh oh you want the right to roam well how about i come and camp up in your back garden and that is the absolute every single tweet that guy Shrubsole, uh, who, who wrote a book called who owns england right um which came out a year ago every single tweet that he uh puts forward because we're working together on a uh, a right to roam campaign but also currently a sort of an argument that we should open up the golf courses during the lockdown, because uh, there's been an incredible amount of um, research done to show how uh, by the Sunday times to show how 1 million more people would have uh, mainly living in towns and cities would have access to green space. Um, If the golf courses were open, which would obviously alleviate the pressure on the parks, which would obviously mean that social distancing was possible without this kind of uh, a sort of opp- oppressive emphasis on lockdown yeah. uh, or, or on, um, you know, people staying at home, which has just untold, uh, you, you know, sort of tax on, on people's mental and physical health. Who, who owns the golf courses? Well, in London, interestingly enough, heart- of the uh, golf courses are owned by either the councils of that particular area, which essentially means that they are funded by the taxpayer or the council rate payer Mm -hmm. um, or the crown estate and the crown estate uh, officially belongs to the monarchy, but Um, currently 75% of the profits made on the crown estate go straight back into, uh, the treasury. Uh, so it's the monarchy that owns it, but it's not the individuals of the queen and Prince Charles. It's the kind of, uh, official post of the monarchy. Uh So again, that means that fundamentally it means that it's owned by England or owned by the people of England because, you know, we reap the benefits. So for forty nine percent of the golf courses in London, um, which total about eleven thousand acres, so call it you know five and a half thousand acres of green space, is already owned by londoners yeah, uh, and
0: yet they're not allowed to 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 wander onto
1: it yeah, and no one wants to deal with the question why not <laughs> and the the answer to that question is just the orthodoxy of uh current Uh, of of property and ownership of how it is currently defined Mm -hmm. in England. We assume uh, that uh, to allow people access to it is a kind of invasion of uh, the owner's rights. But then when you say, but the owners are fundamentally those people (laughs) themselves, uh, the reason people get scared about that is that if you then start allowing that, then that's a a slippery slope. That's your kind of alco pop into the more harder drugs (laughs) of right to Rome, basically, you know, it's, uh, um, so, but as I was saying, people will always reply to guys tweets and I say guy because I don't tweet, but I do, uh, I, I do watch with interest, uh, like how people treat him and they will always say, um, so you're saying we should open up the golf courses, which are owned by the council and the crown Estate? Do you want me to come and uh, walk all over your flower bed as if they've made a sort of a sort of, uh, a, a sort of um, you know, a, a slam point as if they've won the argument. There. <laughs> and the obvious answer is no, I don't want you to come uh, to climb over my fence and uh, you know, sort of sit in my back garden Because my back garden, if I'm lucky enough to have one kind of thing, which I'm not, I live in a tower block. But my back garden is like just a kind of a yard. And that's, you know, where I grow my veg and, you know, where my kids run around. And that would obviously be an invasion of privacy. But if you're trying to claim that your back garden is, uh, you know, a 42,000 estate, like uh, the MP of uh, Dorset, Richard Mm Drax, If you're trying to claim that 42,000 acres uh, is the same thing as a back garden, which, as it currently stands, the law of England says that it is. It doesn't see any uh, difference. It it doesn't see any difference of context and scale. Uh, Then I guess the land rights campaigner would suggest that that you're the mad one (laughs) and not us. (laughs) You know, if you're really trying to pretend that, like, a small backyard is the same thing as, you know, a sort of ancient English oak woodland, uh, you know, with all of its sort of uh, wooden enemies and bluebells and, you know, the sort of uh, uh, not just the beauty, but the kind of, uh, I guess, the the essential oils of the trees, the the kind of the health benefits that are are not just uh, um, psychological, but just, you know, physiological of walking in woodland. If you're mm-hmm. trying to suggest that uh that's the same thing as me uh sort of uh, poking around the you know the washing on your washing line um w- why are you the the logical, rational one? It seems that what you're <laughs> saying is mad and I just want to, you know, have a walk through a bluebell wood because it's well nice. Yeah. <laughs> But people get very threatened, and and it's our job to uh, to sort of present to people um, that we that that there is an enormous tsunami of uh, uh, say Daily Mail articles or Telegraph opinion pieces that will say that this is just madness, um, and you actually see it like uh, you know. A, a large amount of the land in england was enclosed uh after uh the slave owners of the caribbean uh were paid compensation um for when their slaves were emancipated mm-hmm. by law the law in england changed and they had to um uh they had to free the slaves even though i think it was for about 6 years part of the laws with the slaves had to stay exactly where they were and work apprenticeships for six years after it's oh, not right. like
0: rebranded they were
1: emancipated. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you, if you go through, there's a, uh, the UCL, uh, slavery data database is quite a new, uh, or a website that's been up for about five or six years. And that details, uh, where all of this money, uh, went to, like who, who was paid, um, and And they sort of trace the money, and a lot of uh the land uh basically just walls in England went up when people were able to in, you know to, to use the money to enclose further aspects of land or further areas of land but before the cause of emancipation was won, uh people were saying to allow people to confiscate one form of property, i.e. the human beings that were stolen from uh, the west coast of Africa, Mm -hmm. um, would be to call into question the notion of property altogether uh, and where would this lead us? So this whole whole question of first one thing and that is a slippery slope to sort of questioning other aspects of property... Uh has been in the land debate for the last, uh, you know, uh, well, in in terms of slavery, like 300 years, but um, it goes back before that as well. The the logic of exclusion to the land is built on very high and very thin stilts. And to take one of those stilts away... uh, threatens um to expose that this isn't built on rational, uh socially beneficial laws. This is built on historical abuses of the law by people who were in parliament simply by virtue of the amount of land that they owned. Mm-hmm. You know, you could in the Rotten Boroughs you could buy land and through buying land you bought your right uh Uh, to Parliament, basically. Right. And so, you know, and but people don't want that story told because, again, that's another stilt uh, that is knocked from, uh, you know, this sort of um, orthodoxy of land ownership. Yeah. Uh, And so they just, you know, the reviews of my book will be, uh, well, the reviews of Guy's book were, and Guy's book was very much, Here are the statistics here. You know, I have investigated who owns this uh, part of England, and who owns this part of England, and here is the evidence. Yeah, fact based for all that's worth these (laughs) days. Uh, And uh, Owen Paterson, the former Minister for the Environment, I think, uh, his review in The Telegraph that, that was this, that this was pie in the sky thinking, even though Uh, You know, you've got all your bar chart, bar graphs and uh, bar charts in the back and your spreadsheets uh, detailing where the information has come from. Exactly the acreage of the Duke of Buccleuch or the Duke of Westminster kind of thing. There's it's the absolute opposite of pie in the sky. But people are so um, groomed into thinking that any kind of alternative to the orthodoxy, is madness mm. and one thing will just lead to you know sort of upturned cars on fire in the streets and stuff and really all we're asking for is for more people to get the mental health benefits of seeing a nice hill
0: yeah being able to go for a <laughs> <That's>, wander.
1: <laughs> yeah that's all it is and it's really nice and lots of people know how nice it is and and that's it <laughs> we'll be back after a quick break
0: Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with the old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us, we're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. So and these feel like pretty big players uh that you're you're coming up against here. Um and maybe I'm just used to being on the 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 losing side. I mean, uh when I was talking to Rob Hopkins, we were talking about about this this topic and yeah, like the all the things that I've ever protested for uh I've lost. Uh and it's only just recently when uh, things like Heathrow Airport and Bristol Airport uh, that have been turned down because of climate emergency. Uh, I feel like people kind of uh, went. Oh, we've won. Uh, what? What do we do now? We've never really been in this position.
1: <laughs> but is that? But the thing is, Jeffrey, is that true? Because also the. Just you don't have to go back in time like the um, fracking protests against Quadrilla up in uh, Preston. Uh, like they've effectively worked. Uh, the Sheffield tree protest to stop uh, seventeen and a half thousand trees uh, being cut down has effectively won. Yeah. I a bit of me. I understand what you mean. There's like a episode of South Park where Jesus is in the uh boxing ring against the devil and Jesus is this kind of like sort of skimpy white man with like sort of uh, um I listen to stone a rock kind of hair, <laughs> long hair kind of thing, and he's just like this dopey flaccid like sort of, Oh man, oh, let's just be nice kind of thing. And the devil's just like Mike Tyson laying five bags of shit out of him <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and that's how it seems. Yeah. But, um, name a human, right. <laughs> and it hasn't been given by people in power. It's been taken by the people, uh, you know, by the, just the, just the populists kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Recently, like I say, Sheffield, Preston, uh, like Grokey Throw, all of like you know they they won in no uncertain terms, yeah. And they didn't win. It wasn't just like one group of people uh, uh, who won the battle. It was like the uh, the kind of um, pro bono law firm that took the case, um, but it was the the sort of residents of uh, Sipson and you know all, all around. Um Heathrow it was plain stupid, and all of the kind of campaigners. It was extinction rebellion. It was just this kind of loose coalition of uh people who probably on the inside had very different um reasons and different goals kind of thing, but they were able essentially through anarchism you know t- through discussion and uh kind of horizontal power share uh to uh work out uh how to stop these sort of big beasts of industry. Mm-hmm. I mean previous it was the same in the Sheffield Tree campaign as well Jonah, um, uh, Jonah
0: just give a quick uh
1: background to that for people that don't know. To so the what to the grow he
0: thrown No the Sheffield Tree
1: um Oh well yeah I mean they're the kind of heroes of my book. They are there in the final chapter and I guess they're a sort of example the final chapter sort of um is a chapter is that a generates spoiler? trees a... no not at all I can... <laughs> there's no there's no like plot twist in my uh i'd say the only plot twist in my book is uh what i'm about to tell you uh so this is a spoiler but as doesn't matter <laughs> like um uh is that you know throughout the whole book i basically go and trespass on people's uh uh, sort of great manorial estates, like hop over the walls of castles and manor houses and stuff, um, to go and trespass their sort of 7,000 acre or 14,000 acre or 50,000 acre estates. Uh, and, you know, I make a case for uh, why trespass is just a, a, a sort of biased word of power. And actually, you could just call it walking. Yeah. And I want to look at the um, the architecture of power that has managed to call this uh, trespass, but then the the sort of twist right at the end in the last chapter is every single one of these trespasses has been done in accordance with the Scottish right to Rome, so if the laws were changed uh, i wouldn 't have been trespassing at all, mm-hmm. uh, and so the argument of the book is that it 's not the uh, the act but simply how it is defined that is the crime, and the you know the crime is not the crossing of the fence but the presence of the fence in uh-huh, the first yeah. place. But, you know, the twist is like, uh, you know, Scottish right to roam comes with the Scottish uh, Code of Responsibility, which is basically codifying common fucking sense, which is like, don't walk on someone's crops. Uh, Don't come, you know, like I was saying, don't come within uh, a reasonable distance of uh, the curtilage of the dwelling, because, you know, that's an invasion of privacy. And I didn't do any of that. I mean, I barely met anyone. (laughs) <laughs> uh when I it was quite hard to spin a yarn out of it like uh, there was no <laughs> I just went for a walk I slept uh most most of these places I slept over uh made a fire uh cleaned up left no trace there was you know not one uh, uh sort of whisper gold wrapper <laughs> left uh <laughs> where I was and none of this is hard it would it would feel like a uh vandalism to just leave my you know shit Lying around in a beautiful spot of wood, yeah, of course um, but um yeah, but the so going back to the Sheffield tree protesters, uh, there was uh, the streets ahead initiative, I think of two thousand and fifteen or, or thereabouts in um, uh, from Sheffield Council was uh, a PFI contract, so uh, you know sort of negotiated with a private firm who incidentally are part of the same multinational firm that were uh, doing the Heathrow expansion.
0: Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that they
1: were, you know, like the dark overlords uh, (laughs) are kind of all (laughs) all linked. Um, And it was kind of, uh, you know, the Streets Ahead initiative was like, we are going to put a certain amount of uh, Sheffield Council's money into um, making sure that the street trees of Sheffield are safe and what they would call like non-discriminatory. So if Mm -hmm. there were uh, routes um, penetrating the tarmac or or the paving slabs kind of thing, you could argue quite rightly that they were discriminatory against people using electrical wheelchairs or, you know, like actually that street is non-navigable. But the 450 year old, Melbourne Oak was the one of the first ones to be felled and the people that watched it
0: so their their, uh, their solution was was instead of cuts. like to just to cut them all down
1: uh not all of them but of but because of the criteria that they had created um as to which trees should be uh, dealt with uh they um uh yeah, they, they had earmarked about seventeen and a half thousand trees at Sheffield, uh, which is basically a forest, yeah. um, to to be cut down. Um there are an you know, there are a number of alternatives that they could have uh used. They could have put like a, a kind of flexi tarmac in, like kind of rubber you see around trees somewhere, rubber tarmac so that um uh you know the the roots don't cause cracks in the tarmac they just the tarmac is more sort of um, malleable or plastic mm-hmm. to um you know and that's just one example of uh the things they could have done to save these trees but as just a bare point of fact that would just cost them more than just hiring the security guards to keep out the protesters the the arborist's uh to cut them um and and so they were just sort of going ahead and doing a cost-cutting exercise uh, by cutting down the trees. Various different groups, uh, Save Rustling's Road Trees, uh, is to one example. I can't think of uh, the exact titles of the other, but
0: so that's of so grass grassroots. Yeah, that's a particular Absolutely. particular road that banded together.
1: Exactly. So individual roads uh, would band together. Um, and uh, that just didn't want, all of a sudden, they just saw that these trees were being uh, turned to stumps. And, you know, 450-year-old tree has got an enormous canopy. Mm. You know, there's the bird song and the white-tailed moths and all all, all of those, or white-eared moths that that go with that. Uh, Great communities of uh, uh, creatures, insects and animals that, um, you know, are, are sort of homeless now. Uh, And, yeah, individual pockets of resistance uh, appeared throughout Sheffield. Then kind of via WhatsApp and uh, social media, uh, these individual groups started banding together and became the Sheffield Tree Action Group, or STAG, um, who then basically, you know, the classic anarchist uh, kind of slogan, they they kind of, they just organised. And they, um, you know, had these huge WhatsApp groups that were, you know, when people would turn up um, at, uh, when, when the uh, when the tree cutters would turn up at a certain street, WhatsApp would go crazy. And you'd get like 20 to 50 um, people just uh, circling the trees and blocking really? the, and, and just, and then they turned it into arts festivals. Then they turned it into music festivals. They took, they, they really generated a, um, kind of social uh movement against this yeah um, that's great. It's the,
0: creating community
1: a 100 percent. because now these people i mean they've just radicalized themselves because now they're <laughs> helping out i mean it's become bigger than they ever imagined like uh you know um the author rob mcfarlane got involved and jackie morris who both collaborated on the uh the lost words or or the spell songs uh, a real huge hit, and they they sort of uh, created a poem for the trees, which, of course, fundamentally created a lot more interest on, you know, social media about the trees. All of a sudden, they became the kind of um, template for other tree protests, such as in Bristol uh, or in, um, I think it Bradford, uh, um, where councils are doing the same things. And basically, they're saying that there are, uh by all means cut down the trees if that is the absolute last uh option but mm. um but like look at the other approaches and that you know they ran any amount of uh, uh sort of alternative assessments of uh those trees sort of independent uh assessments and uh you know they came back with basically the bare truth that uh many of these trees, the majority of the lion's share of these trees just didn't need to be um cut down and it was just you know a, a, a private uh company looking to uh sort of minimize the cost and maximize profit yeah um don't know if you've read the over story have you read i've, I've not do you know
0: that's that's come into my world uh twice in the last week
1: oh really um, but just who else was... who else has told you
0: uh, a guy who I work with uh, had it on his bookshelf behind uh,
1: uh-huh. behind
0: him. We did a, a work uh, catch-up meeting. Uh, yeah, and then it so it was mentioned, and then I've seen it uh, ooh, somewhere somewhere online. So now this is the third, and you know, now I've got to go.
1: Yeah, now <laughs> you've really got to do it. I can't it. ignore <laughs> it anymore. Well, it's a, it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novel about um, uh, uh, sort of strangers who um whose lives kind of come together uh through uh their interaction with trees and it's kind of climaxes in a uh a redwood forest uh tree protest um but fundamentally it's like uh it it's the biggest ode of uh sort of love to um to the notion that trees are actually living things and they're not mm. just uh you know wood production factories or uh you know just
0: timber uh, in raw form
1: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) crude timber Um, (laughs) uh, and it is just the most powerful um you know i read that book and then was walking uh through mild woods from back home and came across a, a newly fallen tree and you just find yourself hugging it like it's a fallen elephant or something like a it it sort of brings out this latent love that that trees are a lot more than just you know backdrops to a nice pretty street they're you know as yeah, as Monbio and gretaham but they well they're they're these huge communities of um yeah. time time works differently under trees like uh you know they're they're a link to um three hundred years before uh you know you sit under a, an oak tree's canopy five hundred years in the growing and there's something that's alive, uh, that was kind of, um, yeah, that was sort of, that was alive when Shakespeare was kind of thing. Uh, uh, there's something about that that is, it's a very healthy, um, uh, of philosophy of time passing and of, uh, you know, connection with the world that is, uh, it is the direct opposite of uh neoliberalism's productivity and uh mm. you know uh time is money and every second counts kind of thing
0: i've i've been talking about that a lot it seems recently they these these links back to back to different times and and uh you know different ways of life i uh, did a, a podcast with a forager and she was talking about the folklore and you know all the 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 hunter gatherer sort of instincts of, of finding things and i find it uh but really strongly and it's a much shorter distance but every anytime i take my boat through a lock and i'm right. leaning on that lock i'm like this this technology hasn't changed in you know a 100 years 100 yeah yeah you know, over a 100 years you know, it's yeah it's simple yeah. it's primitive and just that that strength i get of of sort of linking back to a time is so strong and Absolutely.
1: So, yeah. But there's also I mean I have a sort of theory that uh I don't know if you've ever seen or read the play Jerusalem. I've not. Do you know, do you know about it? It's uh so um Mackenzie Crook uh from the office, who's Gareth from the office was in the uh the first uh, performance of it and Mark Rylance who's like you know sort of oh, England's greatest love yeah it.
0: the nicest face you've ever seen oh yeah
1: no I totally agree <laughs> the kindest eyes in the world yeah. I just want to sit on that man's lap and <laughs> <laughs> just have him stroke my back and tell me a story like he's he's he just seems lovely but he played a uh, character written by Jez Butterworth called Johnny Rooster Byron uh, and this play, Jerusalem is just uh an, an incredible powerful it's sort of set in a and a little johnny rooster byron lives in a sort of squatted site in an old forest around gloucestershire sort of stonehenge kind of way um and the villains of this tragedy are the sort of kennet and Avon council who are seeking to evict him but mm-hmm. it's all about um jack A green and yggdrasil and um uh, all, all of these old um uh spirits of albion uh, and that's coming back that's like to great fanfare that's coming back uh next year uh to theaters but it's kind of my Hopefully. theory that this i know uh, well yeah if theaters are open for sure <laughs> but then it'll be vodcasted out or something i don't know it, it, nothing can stop uh, jerusalem like um But um, Mackenzie Crook then went on to uh, write The Detectorists, which is a Mm. very sort of gentle uh, sort of study of people's relationship with landscape. Uh, The Detectorists was, the theme tune was written by Johnny Flynn, who was also in uh, the first uh, production of um, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, And I I just, I'm just, it just seems like the overstory uh, Jerusalem Wurzel Gummage, the Detectorists, um, all of these things are combining to kind of somehow legitimize something that has characteristically been effem- or feminized or uh, sort of dismissed uh, by popular culture um, as tree huggers or, you know, the sort of mm-hmm. just a bunch of useless hippies. Uh, we're sort of becoming a bit more naturalized to this idea that there is a spiritual connection to the land and actually of all the things of all the reasons you know from growing you know sort of growers groups to right to roam to the mental health benefits physical health benefits of our relationship to the land you could even argue that the spiritual connection is uh the one that has least been spoken about and the one that is sort of most deeply felt by everyone it's a sort of simultaneous Mm. paradox uh because it's just so easy to um dismissed by um the the kind of um countryside as place of industry that that kind of farmers lobby group that this is a serious sensible place where work happens and well it is that but there is also a need that we have uh to um to hear wren's singing you know to hear nightingales singing sam lee's projects uh with the nightingales um that poetry isn't just a sort of decoration to life, but it's a sort of uh, um, a pronouncement of our deeply felt connection to landscape. Uh, that it seems that now all we've got is the poetry and not the landscape, basically. And, uh, <laughs> the the it, disconnect. It would be, yeah, it would be nice for us to um, to have the both, basically. You,
0: you've sort of talked a bit about uh, your trespassing for the for the book, sure uh do you feel like do you feel like that connection was made
1: well i feel like i had that i feel like i had that connection uh regardless of the uh the kind of superstructure of laws that refused me uh yeah. to do it like um the book that i've written is coming from the perspective my normal job is just as an illustrator and one of the nicest ways for me to sort of sit and uh just chill in nature is to bring a sketchbook and if you bring a sketchbook and sit on a right of way a it 's illegal to sit on a right of way <laughs> just Actually, by the letter right. of the law kind of thing, like they are for passing and repassing, and you know maybe you 're allowed a cheese sandwich, but uh if you want to sit there and I don't know, smoke a cigarette and, uh, uh, do a drawing kind of thing. Then, uh, by the letter of the law, that's, uh, that's in a gray ground of law, whether you're breaking it, but fundamentally like the best views are, um, where they happen to be. And if there's a mm. fence in the way, uh, then I will have always hopped it. Uh, and the book came from a sense that, um, uh, various meetings and interaction with, uh, the representatives of landowners telling me no and me having a deep sort of sense that what i was doing was not a crime was not damaging as the law of trespass pretends it's not mm. damaging the land but simply damaging or threatening the owner's exclusive control uh, of the land um and so the book came from a sense that uh i have this kind of um deep need to be sat in sort of wild places of England that have uh, more to do with animals and the flora and the fauna than they do with human beings kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And one thing about sketching is that it really sort of stills you. You're not sort of crashing through the woodland spurge and, uh, you know, frightening all the animals. Like, out come the deers, out come the... um, uh, you know the birds out come everything because you've kind of become still uh and you just experience so much of uh you get a real sense of that the world carries on without humans and the arrogance of humans to believe that uh you know we are um the masters of uh, of, of this world um and it's so you know science is now that, that there's all sorts of uh Uh, papers that are coming out that uh, from anything like Shinrin-yoku, like I was saying earlier, the sort of Japanese art of forest bathing. uh, Mm. It's not just nice and peaceful to go for a walk in the forest. Uh, It's been shown to boost your immune system for up to 30 days after a walk in the forest. And that's just through inhaling uh, the (laughs) essence, the, the sort of essential oils of the trees kind of thing.
0: Rob Hopkins, in his book, uh, From What Is to What If, he oh, yeah. he talks about uh, going to hear the dawn chorus. And he, he gets up early and he, yeah, I think it's in May, probably, yeah, about now. And, uh, you yeah, know, he's sitting while it's still dark and then he starts to hear this, you know, the the birds starting to chatter. And then it's sort of a deafening uh, noise of, you know, just all these different uh, individual voices sort of speaking at once and he said that his his concentration and his um you know just his vibrancy for for a week afterwards was like maximized sure uh, yeah and that's that's hearing some some birds wake up and chat uh, at each other. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah exactly. Come and shag me. No come and shag <laughs> me. If only we could translate the morning chorus it wouldn't sound so beautiful I don't no, think it's like no, I'm, it really I'm the coolest bird. No I'm the coolest <laughs> bird. They're just they're just full of themselves aren't they? Bird? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the thing is you it, it's been very hard to quantify uh the uh, effects that um say just to take the dawn chorus as a uh as a good example you don't get to hear the dawn chorus unless you've slept out uh that night and and actually my experience of sleeping out uh you'll you'll sort of be woken up by the dawn chorus. And then if you're like me, that you bring a little uh, inflatable mattress because I'm done with roll mats. (laughs) And if you've sort of pumped up an inflatable mattress, you're then able to experience the dawn chorus and then go back to sleep and sort of lie in until about, you know, eight and you waste
0: luxury trespass i thought <laughs> oh, it was going no, to be man. slumming it
1: i am done with it. like that that sort of bear grills stuff that you've got to just <laughs> you know uh, sleep in a sleep in a puddle uh, do you have a
0: little of... eye mask as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> look man if i needed it i would <laughs> i would like uh, that's just um as far as i see bear grills is just uh, masculinity asserting its or using nature to prove your own Uh, you know toughness kind of thing Mm -hmm. I have no need to light a fire from uh, sparks and um, you know like I always bring along a little tea light and just light the candle and then just and then the fire's done in five minutes kind of thing
0: you're not squeezing cow (laughs) shit just to get the the drops of water
1: out (laughs) well I do that but uh, (laughs) I order the cow manure from Amazon
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's organic just, of course yeah
1: yeah <laughs> uh no, i mean i don't know i mean i when i'm thirsty i've drunk from lakes that i shouldn't have drunk from and, you know i probably would squeeze a cow poo if i needed to kind of thing <laughs> but the truth is that uh a that bear grills doesn't do that as as being exposed and sleeps in hotels when the cameras aren't rolling uh and b that it's just that kind of even ray mears who's slightly a bit more legit Uh, I think that kind of thing puts people off uh, wild camping because it's all about, like, uh, uh, bare-bones toughness and you've got to, like, I bring an inflatable mattress. Yeah, enduring it. Fuck that. Like, if you've got an inflatable mattress, you're nice and warm, you've got your nice toasty socks on kind of thing, you wake up from the dawn (laughs) chorus, uh, you know, you're almost so excited uh, that you've got tears in your eyes, then you fall back to sleep. You know, go for a piss in the morning and just see the world waking up, kind of thing. Uh, and there's not a soul. There's it's just you and the world, kind of thing. And and you're comfortable and you're uh, and and you're warm and you feel. This is one of the things. Um, uh, the woman that set up the National Trust was called Octavia Hill, and she was along with uh, Ruskin and William Morris. She was uh, a sort of land rights campaigner uh from a sort of social uh campaigning point of view she thought that the working class should have more uh exposure not just to uh space and fresh air but to beauty kind of thing she thought that Mm -hmm. that was really and they were all part of this kind of arts and craft movement that uh was a kind of uh as much an aesthetic movement as it was a sort of working class you know socialist rights movement um and she set up the National Trust. She was sort of seminal of keeping Epping Forest in London open to, uh, as common ground so that people could access it. Hampstead Heath, she said, Kew Gardens uh, wouldn't, we wouldn't be allowed to access it if it wasn't for her. Wow. Um, she, she was hardcore, but um, she, her mantra was that she wanted people to feel at home in uh, natural spaces. Um, and I guess this is just leading me back to, uh, there's nothing like an inflatable mattress <laughs> <laughs> to make you feel at home. I even bring a pillow along. I don't care. <laughs> it's just, um, I just want to like that. The, the dawn chorus is a very good example because it feels like a miracle, uh, when you experience it and it happens every bloody day, uh, in spring and summer. um, and and it's uh it, it is a miracle, but it's prosaic and uh you know it happens all the time it's just we don't have access to the, that kind of um uh, that kind of glory and mm-hmm. and I think the mental health benefits not just of seeing yourself as part of a- w- much wider system and and you know sort of reducing your sort of um uh personal fears and anxieties uh you know sort of dissolving them into this sort of wider natural harmony but also just um like a breath of fresh air just doing something different out of the norm kind of thing uh in scotland in norway in sweden that's seen as your birthright uh -hmm. and in england that's seen as trespassing uh and uh you know uh you can the police can take can be called to sort of push you off the land and if you do it again on the same place you can be in prison for 3 months and you know blah 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 it's it's uh it's an absurd uh removal or or restriction to something uh that causes i can't say no harm because obviously some people do litter mm. uh, but the wide majority of people don't and and to exclude us from not just the land, but these sort of vital spiritual experiences. Um uh it is just a, a, a sort of is just something we've got used to in England, uh and we've forgotten what we've lost. Yeah. Kind of thing.
0: Um, um so do you think your your book is gonna shake things up? Do you think uh <laughs> <laughs> No, not really,
1: if I'm <laughs> honest. I know that's the worst. Um I think, (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, what book has shaken stuff up? Like, uh, it's not like the Communist Manifesto, (laughs) you know, that's just, (laughs) um, no, I don't think so. I think it will be received uh, very badly by, uh, you know, the right-wing press. Uh, But what I do... That would
0: sort of probably be a bit of a uh, a badge of honour though, wouldn't it?
1: Well, kind of. Chapter the the penultimate chapter in my book kind of uh, uh, is about kayaking and um, uh, this kind of like a, there's an absurd fact that actually we only have access to three uh, percent. We have legal access to three percent of the inland waterways in England, and wow. um, the the sort of the 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 real dynamic of that has sort of transpired to be kayakers versus um, uh, people that have paid for the rights to fish uh, mm. on the rivers. And up in Scotland, um, you have access to, because of the right to roam, you have access to 100%. Uh, and so if you can navigate the river with your craft, either your, you know, what's the, the paddle board or uh, a, a kayak or swimming or anything like that, then... Um, uh, you have a right to it. And there are reasonable exceptions to that. You know, like you sort of accept that some people like to fish. So if they're fishing in a particular area, uh, then it might be polite to not kayak there uh, at yeah. certain times in the season. And those things are written into uh, the the sort of code, the countryside code. But in England, uh, kayakers have lead weights thrown at them or in you know, sort of thrown off for trespassing. That there's a real enmity, uh, a, a false enmity between. I've got nothing against fishing. I no. personally find it quite boring, uh, but um, friends of mine, you know, some of my best friends are fishermen, and uh, it's just the fishermen have bought their right to uh, that area. They they have the the by the rules of property in England. Um, that river has been privatised by the people that own it and those people have the right to sell uh, the fishing or to rent the fishing rights to other people so that they can make a bit of money out of it those people then come along having rented their right and consider that right in some way um, muddied or or threatened by the presence of other people that haven't paid uh, for their right to be there aka kayakers or Um, uh, wild swimmers or whatever Um, but there is an an absurdity to the fact that we're kayaking has been proved uh, not to affect fish stocks, not to affect (laughs) fishing the only thing it really affects is the fisherman's sense of exclusive control over the river Um, I've kind of lost where I was going with that but oh yeah so the penultimate chapter sort of deals with kayaking but also deals with this kind of false uh, enmity between um, the landowners and the um, and the trespasser, like the trespasser is uh, defined by the laws of the land as um, causing damage to the landowner's rights. So I don't have to actually damage the land to be done for damage because trespass is classed as a tort, which is damage just by being on the land. Um, I don't have a problem with the Duke of Buccleuch, and like, unlike lots of landowners, I don't have a problem uh, with rich people. I don't have a problem uh, with owners of thousands of acres. In Norway and Sweden, there's counts and earls that still own the land. What Mm -hmm. I have a problem with is the system that uh, uh, defines ownership as uh, giving you the right to exclude the 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 community that uh, need the land so badly. So you could chop off the Duke of Bucleus' head and the the system of land ownership would stay the same. Uh, and it's only the Duke of Bucleus, I mean, I don't know him personally, but it's only uh, the landowners that have created this story that we are against them. And so by buying into that, by sort of going on about how like, Oh, just how, you know, the Duke of Westminster, he's only 30 years old and he's, you know, he's got however many hundreds of million in the bank and however many, you know, 130,000 acres across the UK or something. Oh, I hate the Duke of Westminster. I couldn't give one flying fuck about what the Duke of Westminster is like. I just like maybe he's a nice guy. Maybe he's not. Who gives a goddamn? It shouldn't be his right to exclude me from his land. Mm -hmm. Um, and if the right is removed uh, then again whether he's a nice or nasty guy it doesn't matter to me all of a sudden England has access to 130,000 more acres of land and whether the guy that owns it or not is like votes conservative or doesn't you know like doesn't believe in the welfare state or something like we can get to that later (laughs) but let's (laughs) (laughs) you know let's let's give people access to the sort of um the kind of natural health service that is the landscape um and and let's allow people access to uh their birthright which is just the um just the the glory of of nature around us uh, cuz especially when it comes to Working class uh, people, when it comes to BAME people, there is a um, orthodoxy, or, or almost a brand of the countryside, that it's basically for white middle class people mm-hmm. to go on nice rambles along rights of way, um, and no one else really. Like, you know, there, there's evidence to suggest that, um, or, or to state directly, that BAME people just don't feel welcome in the countryside and when you read the history of just how much of the land was enclosed or how many of these manor houses were built as a direct repercussion of the enslavement of their ancestors or you know that th- there's a myth in England that uh, to be uh, black or Asian or minority ethnic is to be urban mm-hmm. but like so many of the cultures that uh, um these English people come from uh are not urban in the slightest. There's just this sort of myth in England that uh, uh urban music and you know urban culture is kind of uh um uh it, it, it is what we've sort of allowed uh for uh minority ethnic mm-hmm. groups. But um you know there's a wonderful group called Land in Our Names that uh is is seeking to sort of destroy that It's a sort of black led uh, community group that is all about um, promoting growing and access to the countryside as uh, I mean, they're framing it almost, I mean, specifically as reparations for slavery, which I think is a very radical and very bold and very accurate and very brilliant uh, approach. And it does take a lot of um, guts to, to phrase it in that way, because that is really going to put the orthodoxy's nose out of joint. But, um, you know, people, people it's not just about opening up the land, it's about uh, encouraging groups that have n- have been actively barred from the land to experience it. And then they're, the generations that follow them will find it more, well, it will come to them more naturally kind of thing yeah um there's a story in uh in the book the one the one that i the chapter that i deal about slavery uh, and its legacy in the english landscape um and it's benjamin zephaniah who's uh you know the sort of the, rummy the, poet yeah uh you know of peaky blinders um and uh him and his mate this was a, a few years ago him and his mate he went to visit his mate in essex and his mate uh owns a bit of land in Essex and they were just jogging. They went for a jog before lunch or something. Uh <laughs> there were like something like two police helicopters uh ended up uh in the air because of residents had reported two suspicious black men uh running away from something in the countryside and you know the the point is, you know, were they um, were they treated this way because they were black or, or the same point, but phrased slightly differently. Were they treated this way because no one else was black? Mm. You know, it's such a, um, a rarity in the English landscape for, um, multiculturalism or, uh, that kind of integration that people automatically assumed that there was something wrong happening because, uh, suddenly, uh, black was out of its orthodox space you know it was it it was like um people found that a strange sight yeah. and it's not a strange sight and it shouldn't be a strange sight and it's only a strange sight because britain has this kind of pretend america does too like there's no there's no films that talk about black cowboys but there's any number of black cowboys you know that were um uh, farming the land and you know sort of rearing cattle in america mm. um have you seen queen and slim amazing
0: oh i started to watch it and then um i was far too sleepy but i was really oh. really enjoying it
1: yeah i love it there's there's a scene in that where uh uh one of the characters gets on a horse and says um you know how how sort of um how dramatic an effect it is to American audiences to see a black man on a horse, uh, because, um, well, her dad tells her that, uh, it's because people aren't used to looking up to a black person, um, you know, which the horse sort of automatically does. But that whole idea of rural and black is again, just, uh, uh, it exists in America and it exists in a big way. And there's a huge sort of separate culture regarding it, but, the, the dominant narrative is uh black meaning urban, and it's just spatial control it's mm-hmm. just a, a means of controlling uh, people's movements basically that that is the cause of that.
0: could I ask you uh some some cheesy uh book related questions
1: absolutely yeah, yeah uh,
0: if you could trespass anywhere, where would it be?
1: oh that's easy that is easy the uh, the book. The last chapter ends with me, um, maybe, it's like the Italian job. Uh, Like, do I or don't I trespass? um, This one place, it's basically the back garden of Windsor Castle. Right. Oh, from from the river? uh, From the river, yeah. I've I've Um, done that
0: stretch of rivers, yeah. Have you? Yes.
1: It's very beautiful. Uh, Yeah. Well, on the one side is the Thames Path. And on the other side, used to be a public right of way mm-hmm. until it was enclosed by Queen uh, Victoria and Prince Albert. And, it, and and it's now where Harry and Meghan were. It's where Frogmore Cottage is, uh-huh. um, you know, all two point three uh, million pounds of renovation, to, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. In that. Park, which was once open access until Queen Victoria came around and it was only enclosed because Prince Albert enjoyed uh, bathing in the River Thames and needed, (laughs) he declared privacy so that people didn't see his royal todger (laughs) Um, and uh, in that park is a tree, an oak tree that was commemorated by uh, Shakespeare in um, The Merry Wives of Windsor, Windsor And actually, oh, I'm not wearing it at the moment. This this is rubbish for podcasts, but I'm showing Jeffrey a little pendant oh, that yeah. I have of Kernanos, who is this hang on, old hang on, I pagan. A
0: screenshot that, then we can.
1: Okay. <laughs> so Kernanos is uh, like the kind of um, ancestor of the Green Man. He's kind of linked to Dionysus and Bacchus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's linked to Harlequin. Uh he he's part of this uh and he's very uh he sort of um represents the sort of uh you know he's also the ancestor of Jesus really in, in terms of uh this idea of the uh the the death of winter and the resurrection of spring. Uh he's the sort of god of uh wild, untamable growth, uh and he's basically pretty cool. And the local uh in Windsor and Berkshire, which is where I'm from uh the the kind of um the iteration of kernanos is this um kind of letter, lesser god called herne uh who was herne the hunter and it is a myth that's specifically attached to uh this particular area of land which is you know only recently last 150 years been enclosed um and even more recently uh There are like 16 areas in England that have a a sort of an upgraded trespass charge attached to them. So that if you're caught trespassing there, uh, it's a criminal act and and not uh, not a common law
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, crime. So you are, you know, you go straight to prison for a year. Um, And one of these areas of land is Home Park. I guess just because it's so close to Windsor Castle. Yeah. But it's bloody easy to, you don't even have to climb a wall to get to it because it's on the River Thames. Mm. So the last uh, part of the book uh, is me camping out uh, near the Thames Path, just opposite where this, Her, it's called the Herne Oak, and it's this um, tree that kind of, you know, carries the spirit of Herne the Hunter uh, with it. And, um uh, it's basically unsure in the book as to whether I do do it or not, but basically, <laughs> I don't because, well, fundamentally, I was going to do it as the final, um, uh, just you know, the last thing I did for mm. the book, just do a really naughty one. But actually, my brother works for the foreign office and we had quite a sort of awkward Christmas uh, (laughs) dinner. (laughs) Kind of him saying, if you do that, then I could lose my job because that will be that could constitute an act of aggression against the crown. Um, And if you get caught or, you know, I wouldn't even have to get caught because I would have written about it.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, admitted it. And actually, yeah, exactly. And I could have I could have been arrested just um, just by writing about it as well but it's kind of 200 yards up the Queen Elizabeth walk. You could, you could, if you stood on your kayak, you could almost see it kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, one day I will definitely see that like Hearn has come to me. There was a, um, a write about it in the book. There was a, uh, a, a spate in the, um, early 1800s, sort of 1820s time, uh, of, uh, poachers that didn't, that that were so that were so sick and tired of the um uh the, the fact that they weren't allowed to uh hunt game anymore because game along with the land was uh privatized and, uh-huh. you know rented just like fishing to if you want to come and shoot a pheasant or shoot a deer uh you you can do it for pleasure if you can pay for it but you can't do it for subsistence uh if you can't afford anything else kind of thing you know that's how the working class in those days lived. Mm. But you could be hanged for it. And so they started um uh the, they started poaching midday. They they sort of uh, groups of them went in and um uh devastated the deer stocks uh not not to um not to come away with food but just to essentially murder them. It, it was like this right. sort of horrific
0: big act of, act of violence. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was quite Robin Hoody in that you know when people were arrested for it, uh, they would uh, go and burn the, the the sort of magistrate's barn, or they would sort of uh, break these people out of prison. It was like uh, I'm not necessarily condoning it, but it was one of the um, one of the more dramatic and violent acts against the uh sort of orthodoxy of land ownership but they were very much inspired by this character Hearn the hunter who was basically half man half stag he was kind of this spectral figure that had like a uh, uh, antlers fused to his head and there's a really cool story about that so the answer to your question is i would definitely trespass <laughs> home park because it, i've become obsessed with it and i've got lots of ancient prints of the tree and you know uh i'd like to go and see it basically is it
0: uh i mean there must be you know the drawer of the H- hern oak must be pretty big but also because it's the 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 punishment and being told not to do something uh must yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> i suppose a little bit but again like i was saying about that sort of just because they say it's really naughty doesn't i don't see it as you know yeah i, I don't suppose. smoke weed because it's a uh because it's illegal i smoke weed because it's fun and then they went and made it illegal and so now that's become like a sort of i don't know uh political stance or something but in the same way i don't trespass because uh i enjoy doing the no- basically if trespass wasn't illegal i think i'd still do it i mean i definitely yeah. would still do it <laughs> it's just a silly little rule uh that i that um I uh I ignore, basically. Um and so if the rule didn't exist it wouldn't affect me in the slightest because <laughs> I'm already ignoring it. <laughs>
0: I think uh I think that the vision of uh you waking up on your on your blow up mattress, uh, <laughs> you know, leisurely enjoying the uh the dorm chorus and then going and having a little nap. I if that doesn't create the biggest uh outpouring of people to to the, the countryside and to I, I really don't know what will
1: in in answer sorry in in answer like the full answer to do i think my book will uh do anything i don't think the book itself uh will do a damn thing except for um create possible momentum just like guy's book did uh to raise the conversation and we have uh as we were discussing uh you know before when when i last saw you um you know we we want to uh create a campaign and we want to uh do trespasses and the trespasses we want to do will be pinpointed as to you know the the history of that land and the uh uh sort of um the specifics under which it was enclosed uh and you know we launched a campaign uh, to stop the criminalisation of trespass, which is, you know, before COVID what the um, Conservatives had planned to do in their manifesto. Mm. Uh, and what was really interesting about that on the um, government uh, petitions list, and, and we got like 20,000 people in the in the first uh, two weeks kind of thing, there is an interest, but it also has a map of where, you know, the, parts of England that uh, the signatures came from and it's kind of color coded as to uh, you know, the density of uh, people in any one area. Um, And that was really interesting uh, to see where uh, interest in right to Rome was and obviously Bristol, which is very uh, um, sunk in, in ideas of uh, uh, sort of growing and uh, you know, vegetable growing Mm. and anarchism and, you know, sort of, Also, you're so close to some of the most beautiful landscape in England. Bristol was huge. Got a lot of response from there. Sussex was huge. uh, Cornwall was huge. So we will be going. uh, Norfolk was pretty big. um, Alongside the momentum that the book can give us, uh, we will be going to these places to organise trespasses and to to, to basically create a campaign.
0: Nice. How can people get involved and, and find out about that?
1: Well, there's righttorome.org, uh, which still isn't up yet, but that would be a good one. But um, landjustice.uk is the sort of overarching website that deals not just with right to roam, but with uh, all manner of uh, land rights. You know, from uh, greater access to community growing schemes, right through to The most radical thesis of all, which is the idea of taxing the value of the land, which is a whole different podcast. But, uh, you know, that is uh, I would even sacrifice right to Rome for for a value uh, for a tax on the value of the land, like the amount of revenue. Uh, the basic premise is that uh, the landowner doesn't generate the value of the land. That, that the value of the land is related entirely to uh, the amenities and to the transport infrastructure that is uh, uh, that is sort of surrounds that land. So, yeah. uh, if um, the taxpayer pays for, uh, say, um, a, a new extension to the Jubilee Line, which happened around Bermondsey in London like mm-hmm. the value of the land skyrocketed around that but it's the taxpayer that paid for that uh to happen but the value goes straight into the private uh, to the pockets of the private landlords there um mm-hmm. also the value of the land is uh directly linked to uh the you know the the hospitals or the uh the bin collections or the council amenities or the uh, you know, in Shoreditch, where I live, the sort of, you know, the trendy cafes and all of that kind of thing. The landowner has got nothing to do with the the value provided by these services. Uh, and yet the landowner, just by simple virtue of owning that property, pockets uh, the, the value of the land as everyone else creates it. Mm-hmm. Um, Winston Churchill was for a land value tax. Like it, it's been mooted throughout, uh, the last hundred hundred and fifty years as a way of cr- generating a vast amount of uh um finance that could be shared between the community and not just go into private capital or private pockets kind of thing
0: do you think that would uh lead to a lot of people just jettisoning their their land and creating more more common land
1: well it in some circumstances it would definitely make it uh uh not economically viable for certain landlords to uh say land banking uh mm-hmm. would become pointless where people just sort of buy up bits of land and um uh wait for it to accrue in value. Uh all you'd be doing as the landowner is accruing greater value for the community. So uh, I mean it it's such a vast topic and uh you know but the you know the conservatives say there's no magic money tree but if you look into land value tax like there is a magic money land (laughs) where (laughs) all the trees (laughs) grow on it's just uh um it, it that is the absolutely most radical idea of all of the land campaign and uh for that reason it gets uh the Daily Mail have called it a Marxist garden tax. Like you know, they, people froth at the mouth uh, when you talk about that, because it really would change the face of society. Yeah. Uh, And it would take, it would, it would reorder the distribution of power and wealth in such a way that the people that are currently in charge of it uh, would shit themselves, basically. (laughs) Um, So, but anyway yes yeah, so to to go to landjustice.uk all of all of that campaign will be on there There, we're just a, a sort of a, a strand of that wider project mm-hmm.
0: nice and then um when's the the book out
1: the book will be out in the uh the the, the last week of august um, nice so yeah but um who knows what's happening with covid so we might yes. we might wait for uh, the, when the paper comes out, paperback comes out like six months after that, like yeah. maybe spring of 2021 to really launch the uh, the campaign and just prep everything before that.
0: Yeah, um, it might be not possible to gather large groups.
1: Yeah, exactly. Although they did in Israel do a protest uh, against uh, um, the government's, you know, the way they were handling coronavirus and the, the Great Central Square. There were 2000 people there. Each at two meters distance from each really? other. It was it was quite an amazing, uh, you know. And all the organisers were handing out face masks, etc. Um, so, but I mean, that seems like a faff. I think all we'd all our trespasses would be would just be a nice sort of musical picnic, yeah, bit of a ramble and a walk through some gorgeous land. Yeah, exactly. We wouldn't even be too fussed about confronting anyone. Like, a, you know, we just want a nice old nice old walk bit of solidarity like get to meet other people and actually get to live the you know the um the ethics that we espouse just you know go for a nice walk with people and call it a day brilliant <laughs> you'll be there i'm sure jeffrey I will yeah
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Massive thanks to Nick for taking the time out of his busy schedule to have a conversation. As per usual, all of the links for things that were talked about in the episode will be on the podcast show notes page. I'd also recommend that you get yourself a copy of Nick Hayes's graphic novel, uh, The Rhyme of the Modern Mariner. Uh, I'm not sure that I'd ever really read a graphic novel before, and I. Know probably was a little bit hesitant about it uh but having discovered nick's illustrations i was right in there and it's undoubtedly one of my favorite books um it's probably the book that i've given as a gift uh to more of my friends than than any other a a fantastic story of of morals and looking after the earth and just incredibly beautiful to to sort of wrap it all up you'll be pleased to know that I have ordered my copy of Overstory and we'll be reading that very soon. If this is your first time listening, then please do consider subscribing on your usual podcast app and drop us a review if you think it's good. And do keep sending in your feedback. Uh, It's really nice to hear what people are are thinking Um, and suggestions for guests are very much welcome.